Hello and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. I'm Chris McCormack and this evening I'm joined by Louisa Lorenza Corner, who is an art and design historian at Middlesex University, Catherine Lloyd, who is a writer and curator based in London, and Connell McStravick, who's an educator, artist and writer also based in London. Uh, Connell will discuss books by Fiona Anderson and Jonathan Weinberg. Both books reflect on the queer histories of downtown New York and the Chelsea Piers in the 1980s, the artists that made work at that time, and how cruising is pictured within these crumbling piers. Catherine Lloyd will discuss, uh, will rather profiles the video work of uh, uh, Sophie Condale, including her recent video, The Near Room, currently on show at the South London Gallery. Uh, but first, I'd like to start with Louisa, uh, whose feature, The Feminist Axis, contemplates uh, the recent survey of exhibitions of feminist artworks that largely focus on works from the 1970s, uh, leaving questions where present-day feminist concerns may lie. Um, Louisa, in some senses, this feature was triggered by the exhibition Kiss My Genders, uh, which was at the Haywood last year. Um, shall we start there? And uh, what led you to start writing this feature? Yep, thank you, Chris. So as you rightly said, uh, the article I wrote for Art Monthly um, stemmed from a few things I noticed uh, after attending events and visiting exhibitions in London the last couple of years that were revolving around queer and queerness. And I, it seemed to me that the majority of them were focusing on queerness, but they were not putting queer and queer culture in relation to, to feminism. So I started thinking about this neglect and mm -hmm. what it meant. Um, and I think that um, I started questioning whether this absence was somehow related to the transphobic polemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think I started thinking, wondering whether this polemic um, had lent an essentialist essentialist tone uh, or like connotation to feminists as a whole. And uh, it eventually had made creators more cautious or worried about the juxtaposition of feminism and uh, queer culture and queer theory and politics. And I think this to me seems the case. And uh, and I think I try to write this piece not because I think that um, curators don't have to be cautious, because I think uh, the times in which we're living require to be attentive to the word we use and and to the polemics mm -hmm. and, and sort of the transphobic uh, tendency that emerge here and elsewhere. But I think it's at the same time important that we remind ourselves that feminism is not essentialist in all its expressions, you know? and. Uh, so we have to be, you know, to be careful and to be sort of attentive and to be sort of, um, you know, to remind ourselves what kind of tradition feminists represent. Uh, so today I was rereading uh, Monique Wittig, uh, that is like a, a feminist uh, that was kind of declaring that the woman doesn't exist, for example. No? And uh, at the same time, I think uh, that show, the show Kiss My Genders or the other event I went uh, to, where to some extent... Um, neglectful of what is happening uh, around the world uh, regarding in the social sphere, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that there are uh, trans-feminist movements that are massive. And uh, I was thinking, when I wrote the article, I was thinking of uh, Ni Una de Menos uh, in Argentina that spread across different countries in yeah. South America and in South Europe. And it's a feminist movement which is uh, struggling and uh, fighting for transgender rights, so it's trans-inclusive and so on and so forth. So it seems to me that there is a certain insularity uh, in the artwork or the a lack of attention in the way certain topics are addressed and yeah. uh, uh, explored. Uh, and in a way, it kind of pivots a little bit because you talk largely about the historical surveys that have occurred in the last, I would say, last 20 years, probably the big moment of that being whack 
in Brooklyn, although that actually was more showing contemporary work alongside previous works that hadn't necessarily been seen before. But it's interesting that you're talking about the sort of the way in which feminism is being historicized in some senses and how that now leaves the current conversation almost out of step Mm. and how in a way queer discourse is kind of kind of well open or t- taken up some of that or I don't want to say taken up because that's just de- describes a sort of limit but mm. there's something by which we're saying queer has become an eclipse some of those potentials that are sitting around those histories absolutely and I think when I when I talk about feminists being high story story side I also wanted to mean that has been neutralized to some extent no so the fact of framing feminism as a fe- as a phenomenon that belongs to the 17th means that implicitly saying uh, or assuming that is something which is no longer present. Uh, so uh, there have been, uh, you know, there are shows that, uh, as which I mentioned in the article, that are more careful, uh, but mm-hmm. there seems to be like a predominant tendency of dividing or like really r- sort of associating to a specific historical period, a uh, specific yeah. historical you know, like a phenomenon. And, uh, and yeah, I think this is, yeah, raises a lot of questions. Yeah, you mentioned the Nottingham Contemporary Show, Still I Rise, as one of the better examples yeah, of um, in intersectional w- works, work exhibition making. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there are a series of interesting examples. So I'm not saying that the artwork is overall like, neglecting feminists, but I think perhaps blockbuster exhibitions and specific, I mean, we perhaps also have to wonder why in London, you yeah. know, and uh, these things happen, and why Nottingham instead? You know, yeah. there is a lack of sensibility or curatorial attention to the potential intersections. Uh, so I think perhaps this kiss my genders also signals a tendency towards mass culture. I mean, toward like a marketization of culture and flattening differences, which is happening in London in that specific area of the city. And so we will perhaps this show. Uh, I think it's an occasion to raise questions. Mm-hmm about cultural politics in general. Yeah, you even mentioned how being located on London South Bank proposed a, a glossier version in line with pink washing and rainbow washing as well. So there's a certain degree where which, yeah, there's it's kind of not doing anyone any favours ultimately. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. perhaps it's also touristic attractions. You know? yeah. Or it wants to be uh, sort of a touristic show. It's a show mm. that wants to be a touristic attraction and, uh, and this is apparent in the way, it, you know, that... that, that, that it is created. Um, and yeah, I think comparing shows in London and elsewhere might, might sort of allow us to unpack mm. these differences which relate to, you know, uh, the sort of the policies of the city, you know, and uh, what's happening here yeah. in this specific historical conjuncture, I think. I think we'll probably talk a little bit about gentrification more in Connell's piece as well, actually. But there is a degree by which that is um, happening in these exhibitions that you're describing as well, Louisa, you know, um, subjects around gentrification within the Hayward show, notably. Um, but in a way, this that your argument sort of situates, we have um, this sort of, at the beginning, this ideas around where th- current discourse is situated, and then you sort of pick up on several artists' works and how they kind of either relate to these subjects or in, in effect even rebut or kind of open up different kinds of strategies into these subjects that you're describing. Um, you start by talking about Charlie Ashwell, um, and it's interesting because, in fact, uh, they describe um, sort of International Women's Day, I'm assuming, from last year, but we've just passed it yeah, yesterday, yeah, so true. it's a kind of funny uh, sort of uh, anniversary. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that conversation and, uh, in effect, what, what came out of that? 
Yeah, uh, I think yeah, it was interesting to to meet the artists I discuss. I talk about in the in the article because they all felt a bit uncomfortable about these categorizations. So this reinforced a bit the argument or the idea that this division in neat clusters is very much a curatorial thing, so rather than a desire, you know, on mm-hmm. the part of the artist to some extent. And they were all very uncomfortable about being associated with either feminist or queer culture, but they seems to all to draw from sort of literature that belongs to both worlds and and to be sympathetic to you know to yeah. both political traditions which was i mean very interesting um charlie's work um i think it's um you know the, the work you refer to i think it's interesting because i think you know clarify this um attempt at defining you know at non this desire not to not to be essentialist to some extent in a kind of mm. to some extent slightly literal way in the sense yeah. that the work i talk about is that a list of definitions um that she gives to the term woman mm-hmm. but what i liked about that is the fact that she start with a slightly more traditional one yeah. and she progressively i mean this definition becomes increasingly distant from common sense mm. so i think there is a, an attempt at you know you know sort of moving from uh, you know the norm yeah. so what i like the work about the work is more like the just the progression and the movement rather than uh, the thing itself you know um and i think this was a, for me like a good way to start to talk about this desire that this artist seems to embody to have about you know being sympathetic about different political tradition but at the same time embodying anti essentialistic um you know yeah. forms of feminism and in a sense just to describe a little bit the that charlie posted the word women and asked people to uh, i write and address what they felt the word woman meant am i interpreting the word correctly here yes she sort of tried to yeah. sort of uh distance it sort of to sort of move away from semantic predictability yeah. as i defined it um um yeah it, it becomes more and more abstract in a sense yeah. the how we associate word uh, meanings to that word yeah and so it is a semantic exercise yeah. and uh so i think it's uh this is and i think it's yeah i think it's like she's she's an artist that uh works a lot with language which i find mm. I mean, it's a performer uh and i i i precisely i think i you know she's part of a scene of performers uh, that uh, are uh categorized by curator as a queer scene you know mm. but on, i think among these scenes she's the one that i think is likely more sensitive about the complexity of discourses yeah. which are quite popular nowadays and they intersection this is why mm. i decided to talk about her and i think she's really interested in the notion of care as well uh and uh, how can and, and how you can how can you describe care you know what gestures of care are um and i think it's interesting how she sort of um you know questions language uh, and how normativity mm. is embedded in language you know and yeah and another artist that actually follows that and which you also talk about is erica scorti whose work very much rests on language and in fact you actually mentioned the philosopher andrea cavario um and that idea of like the sort of biography of the self um it's an interesting relationship does Does she the the philosopher is that something that Erica has worked with It's something she drew inspiration at some point I was like I look through her work and there is uh, she's uh, she doesn't work on her you know yeah. she doesn't mm, dedicate any work to her philosophical uh, research but she yeah there is a there's a work by her that is loosely inspired by um Adriana Cavarero's work and I think uh, 
um, you know, as, as you rightly said, uh, the word is and writing is central in, in Erica's court is word, but there is also this technological technological element which uh, uh, which she's she's introducing in her work. Uh, but what I liked about that uh, is the fact that she's also she's questioning the the gender bias, mm. you know, of technology. So I think she's she's quite concerned about she's not. She cannot be associated, although apparently she, you might, or she's she's sometimes been interpreted or like uh, read as like a post-internet artist. But I think she's incredibly aware of the political implications of technology, mm. and uh, and I, it's interesting again how she dismantled the biographical, you know, in the sense that she gives the machine material, material, yeah. and then she asks, she sort of, she asks the, mas- the, ma- the machine to recompose, uh, you know, uh, yeah, her own fragments. Identity. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's it's a, uh, her work is a lot about again the fragmentation mm. of identity and the, which I think it's something that is to some extent loosely linked to mm. Charlie's attempt at like uh, uh, defining the woman is something incredibly abstract and sort of uh, you know complex uh, you know yeah. starting from a very concrete and banal definition so there is like a sort of gesturing toward the, the sort of un, undefined uh, you mm. know um, yeah, it, that, that quote from Cavero, where she says uh, it's develop, um, the idea of subject formation as the outcome of exposure to tales about ourselves, and I find that a very fitting mm. remark in a way about Scorti's work, this sort of play of how one externalizes one's own story and then it comes back in other, ma- other means and, as you said, through a sort of technological or technological filter um, and how it's reinscribed or not or where it fits and where it doesn't. Um, and in a sense where that's either captured by the market or not mm. and she sort of plays with some of those either like Google mm. you know and so on mm. and, you know defines her own shopping habits become part of her own story and so on um, you also mentioned sort of uh, Florence Peake and Eve mm. Stanton which in a way I would say they're quite different artists mm. in the way that they're much more visceral and yeah, charged and but in some other ways I suppose there is a connection with the idea of intimacy and other do you want to talk about why you sort of latched onto their work and what mm. you felt how it fitted to some of the mm. subjects you were talking about in this piece yeah yeah I think the reason why I decided to include them in the in the article is because um there is like a, a display or like exposure of the intimacy, but it's everything but like a, an ideal intimacy, you know. Um, so I think, um, as I said at the beginning of the article, I mean, all these blockbuster shows seems to, you know, move away from a queer like uh, theoretical tradition, which. Uh, uh, it's not joyful, mm-hmm. uh, but um, you know, it's sort of uh, reminding us of like uh, the suffering uh, that n- being not normative entails. Mm. Uh, you know, so there is was an element of um, what I call the dysmorphic uh, element in their performance, uh, in the sense that on the one hand they try to come together, mm-hmm. but this kind of union doesn't work. Uh, so it's a bit like I thought. I thought that the performances are a bit of a, a counterpoint to this myth of queerness as like an ideal space, a utopian, you know, universe where mm-hmm. we will be all happy, you yeah. know, which is what you sort of perceive when you go to seek is my gender to some extent. No, I mean, gender fluidity yeah. is the resolution of everything. Every relationship will be successful. You know, you will be all happy. <laughs> you know, yeah, good luck. You know, so I think these performances. Is about an impossible, impossible, you know, mm. um, uh, codependency. Yeah, and their work. I mean, it is charged in so much that they, you know, one of them. I think I remember seeing a performance where they're sort of wrestling in mud, 
Um, and often their bodies are either clothed or largely unclothed, and then they're painting on each other's bodies, and there's a degree. They're also in a relationship together, so it con conjures a lot of sort of degrees of intimacy and also what's exposed and what's not visible in their relationship. Mm. And I suppose we kind of see into that a little bit. Um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that relationship's manifest in their work? Or Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, I, I talked to Florence, um, but I think... Uh, I was cautious uh, not to mm, sorry I was cautious not to um sort of uh interpret they work on the basis of what she said you know okay. and I think this is uh is important in the sense uh as a writer um in the sense that the intimacy that an interview produces doesn't have to inform too much of your course. analysis you know yeah. and I think uh that's what's I it's a bit of a personal uh, rule, but nonetheless. <laughs> but I think that, um, I think, uh, you know, the fact that uh, even, even when uh, Florence uh, describes uh, the work, she's, uh, uh, she's insisting on the fact that um, they never reach a still position. You know, it's, there is this slippery, this falling down is part of the performance. And it's like the, let's say, the drive, uh, the propeller, you know. And uh, and I think this is to some extent exemplifies or symbolizes this kind of constant imbalance, uh, you know, which I think it's it, it's about, you know, uh, it's it's shedding some, you know, casting some doubt of this perfect queerness. Uh, mm. uh, but I think it's it's nice how they how they embody this absence of um, the perfect dynamic, yeah. you know. And you also mentioned, I don't know how much time we have to really talk about each of these artists' works, but Taishani's work, and mm. many people maybe know her work from their recent Turner Prize nomination and DC Ceramis, uh, and also Anya Kirshner's mm. work, uh, Moderation, if I'm right remembering that yeah. correctly. Um, yes, yeah, so these works as well sort of formulate some of these ideas that you're talking about too. I think maybe, um, I'm not sure how much time we have to really talk about either all of their work in great detail, because I know we have numerous other speakers here to talk to, but um, do you want to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. where Ty's work sits in this? Because I, I think that's quite a satisfying point to sort of talk about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think... I think the uh, the, the word that Shani, uh, you know, uh, that, that the work I talk about is perhaps is quite ex explicitly drawing from feminist literature. Mm. So I mean, it it's, was it makes sense for me to include her. But I think what I, I was interested in her in the way she talks about materials, because I also I try to to put together to combine artists. On the one hand, artists that are more um, sort of uh, interest in theory, like uh, Charlie Ashwell and uh, and. Erika Scortia, like explicitly drawing inspiration from philosophy mm. and and political theory. Uh, not that Aishani doesn't doesn't do it, but there is like she's very in, interested in in the idea of the non patriarchal material, yeah. which I think a non patriarchal way of building a city, you know. Mm. And I think this kind of um, try attempt at and sort of thinking how to build something from scratch doesn't contain the toxicity. Mm. Of patriarchy is very interesting, and talking about toxicity, I mean, we can link it to Anya yeah. Kirchner. Where, I mean, I mean, I think her work is more obliquely, you know, addressing questions of queerness and 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 feminism. But again, she's interested in first in like blending genre, mm. and uh, so the the unfixed, I think, uh, comes across uh, the the form, the filmic form that she adopts that is never clear. 
And plus, this movie is precisely about uh, sort of regeneration, so you know, becoming something new, and and it's more about posthumanism, you know, a world beyond genre and genders. Mm. So I kind of like this, the combination of the two. So it's a good way to finish to end. Yeah. I should also mention that Taishani was a joint winner. They decided to, I said she was a, a nomination, but of course she uh, she won the prize yeah. as well, just to clarify that. Mm. Um, okay, uh, moving on. Um, and we might have time to talk as well a little bit more, Louisa, at the at the end, because uh, I know where we where there's numerous sort of overlays between all those discussions this evening. Uh, but Catherine, um, if we could start talking about Sophie Kundel's work. <laughs> and uh, she recently, well, she has a show currently on at the South London Gallery, uh, The Near Room. And uh, you start your piece rather lovely, actually. You describe the uh, a boxing move uh, called the clinch. Um, yes. Am I right? Yes. Yes, that's right. And uh, do you want to describe the boxing move in a way? Because it, it really kind yeah. of sets up a kind of paradigm for the way in which m- much of this article mm-hmm. kind of unfolds, really. Yeah. I mean, I, d- I don't watch boxing. I don't know much about boxing. But when I Neither think of I, boxing... So I, can't, I can't fill in too much detail. <laughs> <but laughs> when I think of boxers or people boxing, I imagine this move. So I think people yeah. will be able to picture it. It's when a boxer becomes tired, so tired, they need to hang on to their opponent mm-hmm. or their opponent is pummeling them and they need to stop. So it's sort of like... It, it looks quite frustrating because it, it's essentially slowing down movement and stopping because you need to um, rest and take a breath in order to regain your strength, mm-hmm. your physical strength. So so the, actually her, the film, The Near Room, came out of this move. It was a move that she kind of took and thought reminded her somehow of the processes of heartbreak and loss and grief and there's something in this move and in the dependence of other people of being so tired that you need to cling on to someone else that made her think of this move and yeah. that's sort of what what the film came out of and she's a she's actually a boxing fan isn't she she's a boxing fan yeah she's yeah. i think she's watched it since she was quite young yeah so she's got professional boxers in this film and professional boxing coach and she spoke to lots of boxers and and she's very much a fan and a kind of um, avid spectator, quite respectful of the sport. So I think it did. It was originally a film about boxing, but it became about much more kind of through this the entry point of this move and its yeah interdependency between humans. And also she's kind of drawn out this idea of it being an ideological kind of symbol for support or a kind of support mm-hmm. systems between humans. Yeah. And so this film, this film, I think it's a thirty-minute video work, mm-hmm. and it sort of. It brings together this story of the boxer, but also yeah. entwines it with a, another, in a way, more fantastical narrative as well. Yeah, so it, it's kind of described as a supernatural melodrama about loss, and it brings these two narratives together. There's the boxer, who's played by professional boxer mm-hmm. John Harding Jr., and then there's a queen, played by artist Penny Goring, who's in a sort of medieval land. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the boxer, there's the, the point with the clinch happens, and then he receives a near-fatal knockout and it kind of follows his injury after that and his recuperation in hospital and him being prodded and tested and then through his sort of disorientations you go into the queen's realm and she is seemingly imprisoned in her own kingdom um by a sort of um scary uh i don't know what you'd call him he, he this this guy who who keeps her captive for his own ends mm-hmm. and she's suffering from something called cotard delusion which is when the sufferer believes that they are dead in the process of dying or they don't exist um so she's been seen by a doctor but she's refusing because she thinks her body's already dying 
Um, and uh, presumably that is a terrifying condition to yes, live with. I imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, not, Sophie, it's not a sort of a deli- it's a sort of a, a traumatic experience, uh, yeah, imagining, yeah. isn't it, of what one is living death. Yeah, and I, I think it often happens after. So it can happen if you're if you, through psychosis, or it can happen after an, a a near fatal accident. So Sophie came across it by reading this article about a man. I think he was a soldier who had a bike accident, and then afterwards was like believed that he was dead. Yeah. And so she went to meet him and interviewed him, and that kind of became part of the the film. Um, and yeah, so the Queen's kind of going through this and kind of departing herself from life, while the boxer is going through the process of trying to be healed, but coming to terms with a different future because he's departing from his career as a boxer. So there's like these parallels of death and also kind of living death mm-hmm. at the same time. Um, and it's and the Queen's scenarios, they're filmed in a very particular way. I mean, they're quite opulent. Yeah. Or there's a degree of a sort of, uh, yeah, a visual sort of sumptuousness that sort of fits through the, the through the work. Yeah, I think that if you look at um, Sophie's earlier films, they haven't got this kind of large production on them. So this is definitely more, speaks more to her interest in kind of like TV, TV and film, but also, mm. and, and she's really... She really likes the films of John Cassavetes and kind of 1980s films and giallo, the giallo genre, but also kind of lowbrow yeah. TV and Netflix and, and kind of like that saturated sensation. So that's you can definitely feel that in this film more than her other films, which I know it, it kind of ties in with going up in scale. And also this is the first film that she's not in at all and um, that she's had professional actors and people aren't paid by her kind of close friends and, and family. So it's quite a change for her, generally. And this work is seen as part of a trilogy as well, that's right? So this is the latest film, The Near Room, and then prior to that, yeah. after Picasso, God. Yes, and then, and then prologue, prologue, yeah. And they, those three sit together in a sort of... Yeah, it's kind of like a loose, unofficial trilogy, I think. <laughs> I think if you... It would be hard to see the trajectory across it, but essentially, prologue is about a kind of deteriorating relationship or the, the film also acts as part of that deterioration because it's um, her boyfriend at the time, so this is 2013, mm-hmm. her boyfriend at the time she cast in the film and then she cast an actress, well they both cast her actually, the, he was involved in the casting, um, to play his on-screen girlfriend while Sophie followed them in a camper van and filmed them and kind of orchestrated intimate scenes to, between them. So it became this like sort of enacting out of a jealousy, I suppose, because this actress represented a kind of idealised version of herself as, you know, people experience in relationships that are um, a bit insecure and it, it was all her anxieties basically being played out on screen through an actress and through her real-life boyfriend. So that was the kind of precursor to After Picasso God, mm. which happened three years yeah. later. It's such a psychodrama, it's sort of uh, witnessing one's own absenting. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, yeah. And almost willfully engaging with that as a point yeah. of drama. Sometimes watching it, because I found that film really funny. It, it's kind of like, it makes you a bit giddy because you know what she's doing. It's almost like prodding at, you know, like wounds yeah. or like it, like scratching yourself. And you can see the the anxieties in it but it is sort of compulsive at the same time. Mm. Um, and then after that, she made After Picasso God, 
which is about the breakdown of that relationship in prologue and also was made just after her father died. So it's about the loss of these two things. And um, it follows, she's the lead, uh, Sophie Kundal plays the lead in this film. So she plays a woman who goes to see a hypnotherapist um, who's played by her friend, who's also an actor, who's also a hypnotherapist. So there's always these layers. It's not, mm. people aren't just in it to be one thing. There's always multiple layers of why they've been selected and why they're there. And they play the, all those multiple parts within the film, or are they, sorry. Do you mean? Yes. He, in it, real life, yes. he is her friend. Yes. In real life, he is a hypnotist, but yeah. he's also playing okay. a hypnotist in okay. the film. Um, and most of the film takes place in their session. And it took me quite a while watching the film to understand what it was she was trying to rid herself of. But you can tell that she's sort of exercising something. And towards the end of the film, it becomes clear that it's smoking and that she's gone through this um, analgesic uh, process so that she she's smoking a cigarette so she burns she can burn her hand without feeling it. And it's this kind of process of relinquishing that. But the way that they get there is by recounting the story of Picasso and Dora Maar and it's really about relinquishing kind of this love and grief and loss mm -hmm. um, through kind of a very loose guise of giving up smoking or something harmful. Mm. And also the title itself is very sort of bold, isn't it? Yes, I mean, you know, I so mean, it's a quote from yeah. Yeah, Dora Maar about after Picasso, what you know, what, what is left and left. I think yeah. it's, it, it's also this idea so which leads into the near room about this idea of afterwards, like what do you do afterwards? What happens in the aftermath? Like if you, you're so, you give yourself to someone or something so completely and if that's removed, what is left? Mm. And the near room sort of touches on that with the idea of the theatricality of boxing. And if you do that every day, you encounter that every day and then it's suddenly removed mm. what what remains. Mm. So that that film becomes a third in the trilogy, which is more an aftermath. So you have the kind of precursor, the sort of embodiment of something, which almost is like a, um, a, yeah, an exorcism, basically. And then this is the aftermath and looking at a relationship that she's no longer in. Mm. Yeah, and you describe, actually, Sophie Kundale returns to the act of experiencing something life-changing and then waiting for life to change, for the world to realise that it's flatlined and everything is different. And yeah. I guess even the, 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 the term flatlined here is kind of appropriate with yeah. the subject of, yeah. sort of death as well. I think she, she said something along... The, I think she might have said the word flatlined when I was talking to her about this idea that you do go through something so completely, um, like this grief or this loss which does completely change your life, but obviously life doesn't change around you. Mm. And this idea that it, to you that's what it feels like, that there is a complete flatline and... It, but you just can't get the world to recognise it. Mm. So I, I think she said something similar like that, yeah. And I guess in some ways these films then are attempts to kind of recreate that. Yeah. Or reflect some of those that, those worlds that yeah. would otherwise not be visible. Yeah, I think she, she needs to sort of live in... I, I mean, I do, she, she goes back to these states which are sort of slippery and transitional because they are about chaos or mm. they are about disorder. And I think that sort of so for example after Picasso God she was undergoing hypnosis for four days straight and they filmed it in the she lived in the flat ate in the flat they did this thing multiple times she sort of she lives it and embodies it to yeah. release it I think that's kind of how it comes across mm. 
a, de- well, a degree of catharsis. Yeah, yeah. Through the through the work itself. Okay. Um, do you have anything? To th- should we move on? Or are you, yeah, uh, no, fine. Yes, yeah. Happy. <laughs> uh, good. All right, Connell, you're next. Um, you reviewed two books for us kindly this month. Um, yes. One by Fiona Anderson, one by Jonathan Greenberg, both of which focused on a particular period in New York history. Um, where to begin? It's such a, a big and broad subject in many ways. But Two tomes is where yeah. to begin, yeah, on the New York Piers, which I think for listeners it might be useful to, to sketch yeah, to out. Like, absolutely, yeah, so, good idea. Um, the New York or Manhattan Piers were literally the piers of the island of Manhattan on the western shore on the Hudson River, um, which for the larger part of the city's history was what brought wealth and people and goods into the city, but which in the second half of the 20th century for a sort of interesting combination of reasons, including sort of antagonistic union relations and mafia sort of misdealings and things, went into terminal decline and then became over the course of the 60s and 70s a sort of a playground for gay men and artists really um you know a, a really sort of unforeseen sort of public space um in New York at uh, a a period of massive transition in the in the city's history um a time during which the city famously almost went bankrupt towards the end of the mm. 70s and towards the end of this period when it sort of reemerged as you know, this very dynamic global um, centre. Um, so perhaps to begin with Fiona, Fiona Anderson, just to explain, um, Fiona Anderson is a, a, an art historian at Newcastle University, fine art department. Um, and really, this is quite a significant project for Fiona. I think it's fair to say it combines uh, doctoral and postdoctoral research um, on David Wojnarowicz and the, the, the art of the peers, which has taken shape over um, quite some years. Um, it also, um, I think, is complemented by Fiona's participation in the Crusev project, Cruising the 70s, which was a big research project coordinated through the UK and, and Europe, which oversaw the the um, sex cultures, pre-HIV AIDS sex cultures, um, off of New York and and other sort of gay, gay epicenters um, of of the seventies and early eighties, um, including the Piers, um, and um, really the, the the book sort of um, I think attempts within the the absence really I think of of, of authoritative histories that 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 look squarely at the peers themselves to, to sort of bring together art histories and art theories of, of cruising um, with the, the sort of larger sort of artistic and literary archive. Um, and I suppose what this, this gives us then is um, a sort of a series of, of metaphors, a series of um, images and ideas of cruising in ruins and cruising with ghosts. And it sort of combines the sort of fairly well-established, um, I suppose you would say, um, theoretical drift of um, cultural modernity um, and cruising in cultural modernity that's borrowed from Baudelaire and Benjamin um, the, the sort of the idea of the future ruin um, and the sort of that, that mode of critique of capitalism um, the sort of the ruin in capitalism and extends it to a way of thinking through um, cruising cultures in New York in the sort of pre and post gay liberation period 
um, you know, this period of massive sort of social and sexual and artistic transformation. Um, but it then resituates this within the art practices of the downtown scene, which was happening in parallel to the downtown nascent mm. gay scene. Um, and the, the availability of space that, that this offered artists who were coming out of conceptual, conceptual minimalism, conceptualism and post-conceptualism um, and, and really sort of leaving the gallery space and, and, and leaving um, the studio space and sort of seeking out new challenges. Um, so we sort of have these 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 things combined. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to, I mean, just briefly say, you know, when talking about the title of Fiona's book, mm. uh, Cruising the Dead River, and it being a, a line, that I think, taken from Edmund White, where he describes the piers were a cathedral and for Vonorovich, the cruises were monks of the dead. Mm. Uh, amongst the Dead River, um, I think I think cruising the Dead River is Vonerovich. Yeah. So he he. Yes, sorry, that's right. So, what yes, you mean? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. So there's this sort of fantastic, sort of um, sacred and profane kind of vocabulary mm. and and sort of almost mysticism of the peers that it has this really conducive appeal to. I suppose it has to be said, a generation of, of, of pre and post liberationists um, who sort of find this sort of new and, for, uh, new and unforeseen space um, of experimentation. It's also a dangerous space, it has to be added, because the peers themselves are falling into the river. Um, it's also a space where um, sex work is happening, drug dealing is happening, people are being mugged, or, you know, there's opportunistic crime, and it's obviously. Also, a period which I think Anderson and um, Weinberg are keen to point out of extreme poverty in New York. So, you know, there's a risk in romanticizing too much, perhaps, you know, what was happening in in New York. It was a period of extreme poverty Mm. and um, deprivation. But out of of these, these very sort of complex sort of contradictions comes this sort of very vibrant social space. And it's a space of activism and information and transgression. Um, which I think still has a very strong sort of resonance within queer New York sort of self-reckoning. And I think really sort of setting templates for what we think of as being queer space. Like I think these sorts of spaces really challenged our sense of what queer space can be. Mm-hmm. But I think also both Anderson and, and, and Weinberg are very keen to situate this within a longer history. So, you know, we're introduced to Hart Crane and Walt Whitman, who cruised the pier shore and sailors who were coming off boats. And, you know, that's very much woven into the romanticism of Edmund White and David Wojnarowicz's writing. And this sense, you know, of cruising ghosts is sort of a way of kind of um, <clears throat> complicating one's own subjectivity and, and one's own position in history um, and, and, and as an agent within sort of political and social um, change. Yeah, she goes, uh, I think Fiona mentions the uh, Jack Derrida hauntologies yes, uh, of the yeah. self and so on. Is that, I mean, how does that fit within these ideas of cruising? Is that in a way where she's sort of situating these ideas that returns I think it, or For goes. me, it sort of becomes, I think in the review, I describe it as sort of an aggregate theory. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose with hauntology, there's this sense in a way that time itself is haunted. Um, uh, you know, this feeds into then this sort of art theories of, um, this is quoted at the end of the review that I use, which Fiona uses at the end of the book. Um, 
which which speaks of um, rising into ruins. Um, it's a quote from Robert Smithson, and I think there's this sense of sort of you know entropy and and sort of mortality and 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 all of these things being sort of complicated yeah. in a very queer temporal way. And I think Vojnarovic becomes the 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 agent who sort of decenters a lot of the histories. Um, Fiona uses the, the, the sort of tool of sort of ma- building it around rather than on Vonerovich, which I think is really important to her methodology. Um, Weinberg also sort of speaks of a decentering as well. And I think these deconstructive tools, I think, of instead of creating a new sort of patriarchy of the peers, as it were, mm-hmm. it very much challenges those histories. And we see also the inclusion of heterosexual women, um, you know, dyke culture and, and, you know, all of these sort of um, quite interesting lines of, of view, really, in the theatricality of the, of the peers. So you have artists like Chantal Ackerman or Cindy Sherman um, who, are, who are making work there, or Shelley Seacombe, who plays a prominent role in both books. Um, and, yeah, just this sort of sense of, like, um, spaces of um, desire and, and but also perhaps lack, maybe, which is interesting. I think there's a, there's a, beautiful, poto- a, a, beautiful, a beautiful photo which appears on, um, on, our, on our backs, um, which I won't be able to find. But it's essentially <laughs> a, a butch dyke looking in yeah. through a space in a fence, sort of almost sort of longingly... Um, into the space of male homosociality and it becomes a metaphor for, I think, the space of ex- exclusion of the peer, mm. both the art peer and the sex peer. And mm. sort of, I think it's really important in this book. I think it's a que- they're, they're very queer feminist texts and they're very much unpicking a lot of the sort of... Um, the challenges, I think, yeah. within an essentialist narrative in, in sort of gay history or lesbian history, um, it, it, it very much sort of enriches this with sort of um, trans history and, yeah, the more sort of, um, I think, recent queer histories um, of, of sort of modes of queer temporality. Um, but, but sort of resituates this in Wojnarowicz and a much... Older history, as as I say, of of Korean and and Whitman and and, and also there's interesting literature. overlaps in uh, Arch, is it Arch Brown's film? Is that a porn mm. film? And then that actually has Gordon Matter Clark's uh, End Days in it. Yeah, so which is says, maybe a good way to yeah. introduce Jonathan Weinberg yeah. because there's a risk here, I guess, because Fiona is a UK um, art historian of maybe um, not saying a little bit more about Jonathan Weinberg. But um, Jonathan Weinberg is. Um, an artist and curator who is also an art historian at the Yale School of Art and the Rhode Island School of Art and Design, um, who um, cruised the peers, it's important to say. So his book takes on very much a sort of memoir, um, art historical sort of scrapbook sort of frame, as he describes it. Um, sorry, just bring me back to your question. Before I was just I saying in the ways in which sort of object, you know, we're talking about the overlays of histories and so on and how an artwork yeah. such as uh, End Days can appear in a porn so film Piers, because just by just, yeah, because so of these different temporalities existing in one To explain, Peer Groups is a film by Arch Brown, which was made in the late 70s, but happenstance features Gordon Matta Clark's cut-out installation, um, Des End from 1975. Mm. Um, and this becomes a sort of a metaphor for Weinberg in a way for how the peers stages this sort of really interesting possibility that these things were happening alongside each other without anyone really 
knowing each other or sort of having a sense even that that Matta Clark's intervention was an art intervention. Um, you know, the ambiguities and the ambivalences of, of sort of reading an artwork or such, a, I suppose, a radical artwork for the time as Matta Clark's. Um, Just briefly describe actually the Matta Clark work as a sort mm. of crescent cut out into the actual structure of the pier. Yeah, so it's creating yeah. this sort of well, amazing shape in a way uh, with this sunlight coming in. Yeah, so it sort of very much sort of challenges the relationship between inside and outside, and it positions the viewer in terms of where the sun is positioned in the sky, and it sort of brings in different qualities of light into the space at different times of day. But then <clears throat> Weinberg starts to think about this um, as a way of this sort of sense of voyeurism that's lent to the work by um, Arch Brown's inclusion of sort of framing of, of Matta Clark's work in the porn film as a way of thinking about the inherent voyeurism of Matta Clark and then sort of looking at works by other photographers like Arthur Tress and Frank Hallam of sort of thinking about ways that this um, sort of creates a sort of an enlarged sense of the sort of the aesthetics of the pier or the sort of the gaze of the pier or the look of the pier um, or, the, or looking on the pier. Um, yeah. Mm. I mean, Fiona uses this really useful um, idea, I think, of, of cruising as a way of sort of looking in the city. It has this sort of notion of, um, yeah. Yeah, and in a way... Also picking up on that it is the actual ultimate decline of these peers and that ultimately they were sort of well taken apart and kind of removed from the, you know, and now there's a whole other kind of world there. Mm. Um, and you talk a bit about Sarah Shulman, who obviously is, uh, maybe more people are aware of their writing, uh, the art of yeah. gentrification and so on. So, I mean, in a way, these peers seem synonymous, I think, with that sort of the sea change in New York as a sort of, yeah, yeah, as a sort of monetized space to to what it is now, which is hyper hyper capital and also culture. There, you know, the Whitney yeah. Museum is there now, and and so on. Um, but I think I think the pier's existence um, was was largely down to the fact that the city couldn't really decide what to do with it yeah. because there was a I think a highway that collapsed, and then they couldn't quite decide what to do, and then it sort of took them a long time, and then they sort of willy nilly started demolishing piers, um, and this is very much documented through the work of the pier photographers. Um, you know, the chronicling of the sort of the sex cultures is happening all the while. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, these sort of these chronicles of, of sort of queer New York then become the sort of the pretext. These sort of memoirs like Delaney and White and mm. become sort of feed, feed into this sense of Shulman's critique of gentrification because it's about the erasure of mm. spaces of difference um, and other possibilities, really, and about the homogenization of culture mm. and it being about very select groups of, of people. Mm. But she draws that into an analysis which includes sort of Jane Jacobs, whose sort of critique of gentrification precedes Sarah Shulman's. But she also then sort of looks at everything from... And, and I think there's this sort of overall sense of the activity of the peers as demonstration, which I think is borrowed from Vonirovic and the sort of post-galaboration sort of moment um, of the 70s. Um, and looks at everything from um, uh, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera's um, star activism, mm. um, street trans transvestite action revolutionaries, to more recent activisms around preserving the peers mm. within a sort of a a longer view of sort of how queer space is sort of made and, and made as a sort of form of world making and, and where we are now in terms of the erasure of these spaces in and so largely many cities. they exist, I think, 
as well appears now largely exist in terms of those photographs such as yeah, as you mentioned sort of Tress but also like Alvin Baltrop and mm. even Peter Kishar you know these yeah. sort of these are archives of where we can actually picture mm. what are now yeah they've decimated histories in a way that yeah kind of and gorgeous images like yeah. I think you said t- yeah. to me in, in conversation yeah. I mean I can read a list of, of some of the artists because I don't think we really have Alvin yeah. Baltrop Leonard Fink Peter Hujar Shelley Seacombe Stanley Stellar Arthur Tress and writers Edmund White, John Reshi and Andrew Holleran, as well as um, the peer artist Vito Aconchi, Chantal Ackerman, Joan Jonas, Gordon Mata-Clark and Shunk Kender, as well as curatorial projects by Willoughby Sharp and, and David Wojnarowicz, which was the Ward Line peer um, yeah. um, project. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's, uh, yeah. It's, it's a sort of a list, isn't it? I think. Yeah, and the, it's important to say, you know, just to speak about the works themselves, uh, the the books themselves are beautifully illustrated, and they're very rich in terms of bringing to life. I think the the diversity of the piers as public spaces. I think I mentioned in the review, you know, it sort of challenges many of the shibboleths of sort of straight society, the peers in and of themselves, but it also challenges this sort of normative idea of the, the sort of universal gay man of 70s New York culture as sort of white, fit, able-bodied, you know, mm. this, it really challenges a lot of those stereotypes. Yeah, you mentioned that, in fact, Leo Bassani in that relationship, he says, uh, in New York in ways ill-afforded to bars and bathhouses, Leo Bassani descri- which Leo Bassani described as ruthless, ranked, hierarchized hierarchized and competitive mm. Mm. these peers in a way sort of proposed something maybe different to that yeah and just you know to say like friends and <clears throat> people I've been intimate with you know will, will of, of the older generation will often speak so fondly of the, yeah. the possibilities and the sort of the pleasures of the peers um, you know just as a space that they really loved somewhere that they really loved to go somewhere that was fun you know it could be dangerous but it also could be a lot of fun especially during the dead time yeah, I mean, in a way, it's like I think Akonchi is the one that really captures some of the terror for me. Mm. The, you know, the sort of late night hanging out and sort of yes, know, and also blindfolded at various points. I mean, this this sort of he captures more of the sort of the tension of he tops the tensions, yeah. I think, and the sort of these these themes of sort of blackmail and um, penetration, and you know, it's it's these sort of quite sort of dark themes, but. I think it becomes obvious when you read Jonathan Weinberg's book, it's not clear um, to what extent queer people who participated in, in, in these kind of interventions sort of found a conscious yeah. sort of um, take on it all, this sort of purience or perversity. Um, yeah, that's a, a sort of an outsider looking in. Um, but, you know, I think also a country made some very sort of interesting and prescient comments about the peers like he talks about New York as not really belonging to us and public sex having the possibility of sort of having this if, even if temporality this sort of transformative capacity mm-hmm. um, and sort of very much considered sort of the private sphere as a sphere of sort of um, normativity and private property and you know that that, that these sort of like temporal um, transient um you know, ephemeral spaces really sort of open up different sort of realms of possibility in a city that largely doesn't really belong to or doesn't really have a true sense of publicness. Mm. And also at that point, this sort of really hinged on, I mean, we talk, you talked briefly about HIV and AIDS mm. and how that kind of forced a different kind of publicness, I would say, yeah. on specifically the gay male body yeah. um, or, and trans bodies um, in but in a way, how that impacted or changed the way in which peers 
the peers worked or how they were conceived I think from now in a historical mm. point of view because we see Vanorovich's work and we see those kinds of the leftovers or as you said the sort of ghosts of those lives in a way and in a mm. way they are encapsulated to some extent within those I think Fiona <clears throat> uses this term of viral momentum as, a, as, a, as a, a, a term which she uses to critique the sort of heteronormative teleology of the peers as the sort of or, or, or the sort of AIDS crisis as this sort of inevitable outcome of peers' culture, um, and I think flips it and and sort of really sort of challenges um, that sort of heteronormative view and and asserts the idea that really it's a a space of of transformation and a, a space of escape and a space of sort of possibilities and unforgotten futures which are you know in an age of sort of changing sexual horizons web 2.0 culture different gender boundaries different sexualities that we we need to understand and know and i think that you know this provides a very valuable opportunity to do so both books provide a valuable opportunity to do so and if i think the book launch for fiona's book is it looks and i think it's not this saturday but the following saturday i think it's the 12th I think you're right because I'm in Ireland and I'm going to miss it. Louise, do you have any thoughts about that? I mean, I know your your subjects in a way coalesce a little bit with uh, some of what Connell's talking about. Do you have any comments to make around? Um, not strictly related, and I was interested in the question of gentrification yeah. you, because you pointed yeah. it out, you know, and. Uh, and you know, in, in my article, I, I sort of only obliquely addressed uh, you know the relation between uh, the content of the exhibition and what's happening in the space uh, surrounding yeah. the Southbound Center. And uh, so I was, I think, you know, like the review um, that um, he wrote, um, sort of more sort of um, directly addressing uh, the relation between sexuality and, and public space. Uh, yeah. Which I think perhaps what I you know I'm, I'm, I've been thinking how that the topic I addressed in the review could be expanded by including the question of like gentrification and mm. what's the public space and normativity and the public yeah. in general and um, yes yeah I mean I went to a quite a thorny conversation debate which was at the Whitney last summer and they looked at the sort of gentrification of the peers um, through a racialized lens actually but, um, and but picked up some of the work of Barbara Hammer and mm. Barbara Hammer revisiting an earlier work that she made mm. uh, in the 80s, which is a kind of like Ouija-like recreation of deaths. That It was a very crazy film that she mm. made. It was actually quite good. And then she restaged it or thought about the film just before she died. Mm. Um, and then there was a series of other conversations about how, yeah, so how, how the sort of the gentrification has sort of, you know, robbed or taken away these kinds of spaces from many people that were you know people of color or you know without money mm. and living on certain kinds of poverty and how what the responsibilities are of those in the city and certainly around that in the cultural sector to those histories and to those lives more importantly um yeah there was an interesting sort of um debate and largely now it's seen that the whitney is very much seen as a kind of emblem of that uh, cultural sort of flattening, yeah, um, it's, it's entered that along with the High Line, um, space. yeah, mm. largely because yeah. it is such a commercial success. But I do believe we may be running out of time here by the look of our sound engineer's face, uh, which leads me to say thank you a great deal to Connell, to Louisa, to Catherine for coming on this rainy night, and to Sam Austin, our sound engineer this evening, for making everything sound perfect. Uh, good night and thank you for listening. <laughs>